Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Ruminations of a Six-Button Samurai, Episode 2, The Elusive Happiness of a Salty Arcade Rat. It's JJJ, Six-Button Samurai, and it is now the fall of 1986. A preteen JJJ is smackingly in love with his brand new NES Deluxe set. It's got Duck Hunt with the Zapper. It's got Rob the Robot and Gyromite. Gyromite absolutely sucks. But Duck Hunt is cool, and it's especially cool when his friends come over. But in the meantime, he's begun to second guess his purchase. Why? Because he's been to the arcade, and he's noticed this game called Versus Super Mario Brothers. And that game's really, really good. It's hard, but it's really, really, really good. And he begins to wonder, ah, I should have gone with the power set with Super Mario Brothers, Duck Hunt, the Zapper, and one controller. But alas, this would just be the first in a long line of misguided, perhaps ill-informed purchases. But you have to remember, at this time, video game media was virtually non-existent. The first issue of EGM wouldn't come around for like, by EGM, I mean Electronic Gaming Monthly, of course. But the first issue of EGM wouldn't come along for like another two years. So this is in the really just, you know, era of the amoeba crawling up onto the beach. I had obviously, I had a really crappy Atari clone that I was given for Christmas called Gemini and a pile of games before that, which I had taken apart once because I was really curious to know what was inside and how it worked. But there was virtually no guidance with these NES games. And, you know, when you're preteen, you don't really have a way of earning much scratch outside of your allowance. So, whew, this is a brutal time. And I was eternally torn between, well, do I save up for some 20 to $40 NES cartridge that could be good? could not be good or you know do i burn like my five ten bucks a week or whatever it was now on the next trip to the arcade it was a genuine dilemma for a person that age for whom games is just games are the thing overwhelmingly so at this time some pretty important games that continue to stand out to me came out there was a chuck e cheese that was way out on the east side of tucson and that was the first place that I would play Konami's Life Force. Life Force had this really amazing soundtrack. It's by the same people that made Gradius, of course. It had this underlying theme where it was sort of like, it was kind of like a inner space, but it was like you were a spaceship, but you were supposedly fighting inside of the human body because it would talk about, like, it had this crazy little uh, sample digital voice that would allude to like different parts of the body so it was really interesting it was really unique it had just this really strong sounding synthesized soundtrack that like above the din of a busy arcade like that it was still the most audible thing in the entire room and now i realized like just what an incredibly strong draw like something that sounded really really good you know, after, like, I was really, really drawn to games with great sound. Life Force was definitely in that vein. 
Tega's outrun, of course, was just this visual feast. I mean, there was nothing else in the arcade that looked as convincingly 3D as Outrun did in that time frame. But again, um, it was this eternal sort of tug of war internally between like, God, do I burn my money every week at the arcade or do I try and save up for another game for the NES at home? And eventually I sort of navigated my way to my own copy of Super Mario Brothers, of course. And I can remember this very specific weekend where literally all I did was play that game, like the entire weekend. And I can remember very much waking up for school on a Monday morning. I thought I was going to go insane because the theme music was absolutely seared into my skull, like the burnout on an old CRT monitor. I mean, it was unavoidable. It was just there, and I could hear it, like, whatever I was doing. Like, I hopped in the shower before going to school, and I could still hear it. And I'm, like, tying my shoes, and I could still hear it. And I'm riding in the car to school, and yes, I can still hear it. So, um... Temporary uh, Koji Kondo-induced psychosis aside, you know, that was really the flavor of the time. Um, You know, the the NES was sort of, it's really hard to understate, like, what a giant stamp it had on gamers my age. Um, You know, it was the thing, and it was essentially this complete and total reinvention of the video game console market as we knew it, um, you know, forevermore, it would be about Nintendo as the pace setter in that industry. But as an NES gamer, all was not completely perfect. There were still these great other games that I was beginning to fall in love with at the arcade. And there were the first purchase that I ever felt like I got completely burned on just roasted and it was the first time i became very acquainted with the return policy at kb toys because i'd fall in love with the coin op ghost and goblin you know i know that now that series has this killer reputation for just being like unbelievably hard like one of the hardest game series of all time essentially the before there was dark souls there was ghost and goblin um And, of course, I'm really excited about the forthcoming uh, new game that's coming out on February 25th. But in that time, I remember going to KB Toys, and I remember seeing the box for Ghosts and Goblins. And when I looked on the back, the box had what looked to be identical screenshots. You know, I didn't... I was not some any kind of a savvy consumer whatsoever in that day and age i mean i was a little game freak who just leapt to the most pleasant assumption in front of me and so seeing these screenshots on the back of the box that's just like super mario brothers obviously was not a good example because fundamentally the arcade version was just a slightly enhanced you know the arcade hardware was a slightly enhanced nes essentially you know this is also the big era of home video um 
and I was already somebody that would like, I would pester my mom to take me to like the video store, grab a couple movies. And for whatever reason, me not being a tech savvy person, this represented the first time where I just didn't understand how the resulting game that I brought home was not identical to the arcade. Like my reptilian brain was somehow interpreting like, when I get movies for my VCR, like they're the same movies. Like, why would this be any different kind of thing? Like, it's really stupid now when you ponder it, but I actually think that was my mindset at the time. But anyway, I got this NES version of Ghosts and Goblins home, and it was horrible. Like, it was such an unbelievably trash translation. Like, it was just outrageously unforgivably bad i mean really choppy animation tons of slowdown music that didn't hold a candle to that rich synthesized organ-like quality of the original you know all of that was just like this ferocious disappointment and i can remember um bugging my grandpa for a ride to go back to the mall to return this thing and the clerk at KB Toys is just like, no, you've opened it. Too bad. We don't take games that have been opened already. And it was just this Dickensian education, like just being throttled by reality. Like, what is happening? This is like $40 of my really hard to scratch together money. Economics was a big deal. I was not a rich kid by any means whatsoever, but I was born between. My love for these coin ops, but wanting something that lasted longer. And of course, like Super Mario Brothers, in terms of play value, has got to be one of the most economical and, you know, one of the most value packed experiences ever minted in Silicon. You were able to play that game for months and months and months and years and whatever i mean it was brilliant it was packed with secrets and you know as i come to understand now like it you know it was such a pinnacle of the library on that machine for a very specific reason that sort of birthed this really kind of like salty like oh it was so hard on arcade board for anything that came out on the home end like you know, I'm really ashamed to admit it now, but like I'd also played the arcade Ninja Gaiden by Tecmo. And if you know much about the arcade version, like it's got this really, um, really kind of exquisite hand drawn appearance with a lot of animation and these really interesting interactive backgrounds where like you can hang from a signpost and kick enemies in both directions. And there's like phone booths to toss enemies through. And there's all this stuff. There's all this interesting gameplay in it, even though, you know, essentially it's also a quarter eaten bitch, like a few other games I'm going to talk about here. And I really miss the boat on this one now. And it's a game that I've played since that I, I can understand now why it's so beloved. But I managed to rent the arcade or the NES Ninja Gaiden when it dropped after that. And I was just like, oh, what is this? This isn't like the arcade at all. You know what I mean? And if I'd had just 
an ounce of patience or a little bit of sight above myself to like sit and actually play this game for what it is rather than what I was disappointed it wasn't. I might have played a really excellent game a hell of a lot sooner. You know, this would become a thing. Um, you know, I was really, really absurdly picky about any sort of coin-op translation. And, like, another profound example of that was... And but the thing is, I think this is a disappointment that more people share. I mean, when the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game dropped, it had nothing to do with the coin-op that we'd all begun to love the pieces. And so it was like a thing that you'd sort of warn your friends about, like, eh, don't rent that, man. That game sucks. It's not like the arcade at all kind of thing. But that was a very common refrain from uh, me in that time. Um, but then I also began to become really wary of games that I learned were just outright quarter munchers. You know, there were certain games that were like that. Gauntlet was definitely one of them. Seeing Gauntlet for the first time in an arcade, like, it was this really big, impressive cabinet. Like, I can't recall off the top of my head if there was a four-player cabinet previous to that, but, you know, it was really cool to get on this machine with, like, three other randos or whatever, you know, because lots of young people were hanging out in arcades in that time, and, you know, it was a place where people tended to drop their social armor a little more readily, you know, which was kind of one of the reasons I was drawn to it. But, um, you know, the moment when I sort of figured out that, like, however good, quote-unquote, you got at Gauntlet, like, your life would just invariably tick down. And that one actually wound up becoming a bit of a double whammy because I saw the NES version in the store, and it was the first game that I remember being forty nine ninety nine at release. And that was like the most expensive game going. But in my head, I was like, oh, if I could play Gauntlet all the time, like that wouldn't mean, you know, $5 gone in however many minutes at the arcade, you know, like that would be something of value. And of course... The NES version of Gauntlet is also a completely fucking terrible translation. <laughs> so um, this was a moment as a gamer where things were not completely satisfying. You know, when I got to play some things that were just absolutely transcendent or memorable experiences on that machine, like the original Legend of Zelda was just something that you know, I'll never forget the morning that I finally finished that and got through Death Mountain. I don't uh, think that's a pretty universal memory, but it's one that still sticks really firmly in my head. And then, you know, even Mike Tyson's Punch-Out was a weird one that sort of broke that rule for me because obviously it didn't look anything like the arcade whatsoever. I mean, it wasn't really possible. I mean, that arcade game had these huge sprites that were unbelievably colorful and you know your guy wasn't little mac he was this sort of grid dude <laughs> that was like a generic see-through boxer that sort of allowed you to look at what the opponent was doing but that was a game where for whatever reason you know mike tyson was this really big deal at the time i mean it's 
kind of difficult for people that weren't around in that era to realize now, but like there was a time when boxing was actually a really, really, really big deal. And Mike Tyson grabbed almost as much sports ink in that era as Michael Jordan did. I mean, whenever there was a Mike Tyson fight, there was a lot of hype about it in the media and, you know, whatever would happen, you know, when he invariably knocked somebody out in a good 75 to 90 seconds, it would be front page news. So, you know, obviously they were really brilliant about how they adapted that to become a really good and interesting and compelling second experience. You know, it's actually a game that's much deeper than its arcade counterpart. But for whatever reason, that was one that I actually dropped my armor on and sort of allowed myself to, to embrace and understand why it was so good and so interesting. So this is a moment when a salty little arcade rat is just getting an education on why some things are very different from the home and some things are still better left in the arcade. In our next episode, we're going to creep up on the 16-bit era. We're going to get into 1988, 1989, the Capcom games that would really begin to grab my attention, you know, front and center. And then the idea that Sega was going to bring forth this home console that would finally manage to really capture that sort of arcade feel of things was, it was the biggest news going in my world. You know, I was definitely not, even though I loved the NES, I certainly wasn't any kind of a like diehard for companies. I mean, that was one thing that's actually always been consistent for me. Like, where's the really good and interesting game at? What do I have to get to be able to play it? Never was much of a sort of Coke or Pepsi adherent. Um, and that'll remain true throughout this entire mini series. So thank you very much for joining me on my latest foray into trying to pick apart like what was happening in my head at the time and how some of those things still resonate today and how some of those things are things that I just laugh at. Thank you very much for tuning in to another Ruminations of a Six-Button Samurai. Peace. What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futurist Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at RuminationsRadioNetwork.com.